0: Legalize Freedom.
1: Greetings and welcome once again to Legalize freedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat, and my guest today is John Michael Greer, who joins us to discuss the retirement of his popular blog, The Archdruid Report, his latest venture, Ecosophia, and the future of our civilization. Over the years, John has written more than most, and about as much as can be said concerning the decline and fall of industrial civilization. As the converging crises in energy, economics, and the environment continue to unfold, and politics plunges to new lows. He is making a shift in emphasis away from past paradigms and towards a spiritual perspective which may help salvage some meaning and purpose from the wreckage of our doomed society. Reflecting the subject matter of John's regular column in the post-apocalyptic periodical Into the Ruins, we also discuss how the dystopian science fiction of the past presciently described the dysfunction and disintegration of the present. On a plastic planet of suburban sprawl, metastasizing strip malls and streets paved with cheeseburgers, a fast food fantasy land where anything goes and nothing matters is fast going away. As we sift through our hopes and fears for the future and strive to see beyond collapse, can we somehow survive the coming storm? Hello and welcome John and thank you so much for joining us once again on LegalizeFreedom.com. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be on. John, uh, we've done quite a number of interviews over the years, and uh, this Mm -hmm. one's, I'll say it's something a little bit different, but it's mainly because it marks a bit of a step change in the direction of your work. Uh, We'll talk Mm -hmm. about that in a moment, but just for some listeners who may be unfamiliar with who you are and what you do, just give us a little potted bio.
0: (laughs) Okay. Um, I'm a writer. I write on a wide range of subjects. One of them is the future of industrial society, and unlike most of the people who write on the future of industrial society, I don't buy into the, the either of the two mythologies that are popular in today's world, either the mythology of perpetual progress or the mythology of imminent apocalypse. I look at history, I examine where, where we are, where we've been, where we're headed, and and I talk about uncomfortable and, and unfashionable topics such as decline and um the, the end of progress, the end of industrialism, not in some kind of grand Wagnerian apocalyptic fireworks, but the ordinary with the civilization's fall. Um, I also write about a lot of other things, and some of those uh, will will trickle their way in. In terms of biography, I have led a very a fairly quiet life. I was born in one of the suburbs of Seattle, Washington, out on the West Coast. I currently live in the north-central Appalachians, um, within a couple hundred miles of the East Coast. Um, I'm, I've been married for 30-odd years, and um, I write.
1: Okay. Well, that's uh, potted very nicely. Thank you. (laughs) Now, I think that this little chat of ours today will probably be most meaningful for those already familiar with some of your work because of the nature of it. And uh, certainly if someone's listening to this and despite what you've just said, they're saying, okay, so what's this guy really about on the interview page for this show? People can find links to everything we've talked about before. And that's a really good cross-section of your work certainly <clears throat> f- certainly for the last seven or eight years we've
0: covered most of it on this
1: show yeah yeah we i think we certainly have since i first spoke to you i think which would have been in 2012 everything since every <clears throat> significant work that you've put out of non-fiction i've certainly spoken <clears throat> to you about but the gist of today's talk is and i say this will mainly f- strike a chord with those familiar with your work and they Many of them may already be aware of what I'm about to say and that's that is that you're about to or you are making some significant changes to the direction of your writing and how that will be reflected in your online presence. So just <clears throat> just tell us about that.
0: Okay. Basically, um just over 11 years ago, I started my first blog, The Archdruid Report, and I expected it to be a minor little blog with maybe 15 readers ever. That didn't happen. I was talking about the future of industri- industrial society, uh, peak oil, um, climate change, and other cheering topics from the standpoint of my spiritual background, which is as a druid. Uh, you know, no apologies there. That's what I am. Um and I figured, okay, this is going to be a minority interest. It was not. Um, at the peak at its peak, the Orchard report was getting a third of a million readers a month, um, which I think is kind of up there. And but but uh, that was all being hosted on one of the big free blogging platforms. Um, let's see, it would have been in 2014. I started a second blog to talk about more specifically, re- um, more specifically about things relevant to my spirituality. And that was the well of Galabase. So those two were chugging along and one of the problems that I was running into is simply that the big um the, the conglomerate that owned the blogging platform was bought out by another conglomerate, an even larger one. Um the software upgrades started becoming more and more intrusive, more and more dysfunctional. It became increasingly hard for me to do the simple work of carrying on my blogging. And a lot of people who uh, tried to put through comments found that they couldn't. It, it just it, this is something that that um, I've actually written about extensively now. I have a book coming out in, um, a little later this year titled The Retro Future, which points out that at this point progress no longer means improvement in most cases. And so the, the, this blogging process, the blogging software was becoming increasingly hard to use because it was being upgraded. <clears throat> and so I eventually reached the point where I was going, okay, <laughs> draw a line under this, start anew. And so I've, I began, I, I, wound up my existing, my two existing blogs. I made arrangements to open another blog on a, you know, with, with server, server space that I was paying for with a tech support person who I could actually get in touch with, um, unlike the, you know, big conglomerate freeware, uh, free blogging site which, you know, God help you if you want to try to contact an actual human being, and, and these other benefits, so that I could, so that I didn't have to put up with the technical nonsense. In the process, though, I had a chance to go back over. Eleven years of blogging on the future industrial society, and three years of blogging on, um, on spirit, you know, green natural spirituality, a spirituality of nature, and realized that on the one hand, I had said most of what I wanted to say about the narrowly defined issue of the future industrial society, and on the other hand, that I had a lot more to say about the interface between spirituality and politics, spirituality and the environment, how we relate to the universe um seen through the lens of matters of ultimate concern to use the, one of the famous definitions of religion and so that that ended up be, this that ended up becoming another of the themes that switch over because i decided okay the new blog um www.ecosophia.net, um is going to focus on that primarily and so I think it was I think it was time. I'd been writing on and off about such subjects in the Arch Druid report for a very long time. I've been hinting about that and, and sort of dropping a, a trail of breadcrumbs in the other blog, The Well of Galabays for ever since it got started. And so I really felt it's time, okay, let's 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 go let's go deeper. Let's say, okay, why do we think the way we do? Why are we thinking? Why is it, is it ordinary and natural and apparently natural and, and so comfortable for us to think about the world in ways that are causing us to destroy it? And how can we change?
1: One of the uh, final posts that you put up on the Archdruid Report I found very striking, and this was before I was aware of what was obviously going on in your mind, along mm-hmm. these along these lines, which was i think it was a, how shall we then live or very similar mm-hmm. similar title to that yep. it was this like deep philosophical musing mm-hmm. of course it reflected some of the things that you've just mentioned and i remember mm-hmm. i remember thinking at the time, oh you know I hope he explores more of this territory um because as you say mm-hmm. you, you had thoroughly gone over the um uh the the, the the how shall i put it the more practical the more obvious mm-hmm. aspects of of the mm-hmm. of the changes coming down the line that we're facing. So mm-hmm. in all of that process that went on your mind, it sounds like it was a combination of the decision to make these changes. It was kind of necessary. It was also easy in a way. It was kind of obvious and natural. I mean, was there any element of difficulty at all for you? Or was it really no that was it such an obvious path for you to take?
0: Well, I didn't, I didn't jump immediately. It was one of those things that gradually grew as I brooded on what was going on with the Archdruid Report and the Well of Galaviz, what I wanted to do with my blogging, what I was going to do about the increasing cascade of dysfunctional upgrades from from the you know, the big um, conglomerate free platform. By the time I actually was ready to make the decision, it was an obvious way forward. But it took me—I I took some time to feel my way through it. It was not, it was in no way a snap, a snap decision. And so I just I kind of let it ripen, and um, by the time again by the time I was by the time I posted that particular um, post, how shall we then live? Yeah, I, it was it was clear to me that that was just that was in, that was the natural next step in the the unfolding of what I was doing online and generally in the unfolding of my writing. There's only so many times you can write. Um, industrial civilization is in decline. It's just going to get worse. We've been here before. Here's what a dark age looks like. Here's the decline to a dark age. Here's all the ways we're already um, well along that process, dot, dot, dot. You can only say that so many times in so many different ways before you're repeating yourself. And I didn't want to repeat myself.
1: No, and I will say, as someone who's read all your books on this general subject that you've done very, very well, <laughs> to act, to actually, uh, in some way, go over the same ground again and again, but each time add a little something. and sometimes add a great deal, actually, but keep twisting it, And, and um, by that, I mean, you know, mm-hmm. add, adding new twists, finding new mm-hmm. angles, new ways to shine a different light on the same thing. So because the mm-hmm. the, the underlying message is the same. So mm-hmm. I, th- I think you've done remarkably well to keep it fresh, if that's uh, the appropriate word for, you know, for such a, a doom-laden message. But, uh,
0: Well, the thing is, the entire eleven-year run of the Archdruid Report was was ultimately the working out of a single set of thoughts, a single kind of cluster of ideas, yeah, and. That those had to be worked out and developed in many different ways and from many different angles. I spent like a year in there, um, working on the economics. Uh, those turned into my book, The Wealth of Nature. My book, The Wealth of Nature. I spent what about a year and a half discussing the way that that progress has come to function as a religious myth in our society. We we most people nowadays put their faith in progress, the way a devout Christian puts their faith in the second coming of Jesus, um, and and that turned into my book After Progress, of course. So, you know, each of these each of these aspects of the thought had to be developed in full just because that's the way I like to think. And as I worked them out, I gradually filled in the available territory around this basic cluster of ideas. But it's basically done now. And so now now it's the next step and okay, what is underlying? You know, what what are the basic assumptions? What are the basic beliefs about the world and about ourselves that are making it so easy for us to behave so stupidly in relationship to the only planet we've got and to the biospheric processes that keep us all alive why are we so dumb about that and my answer which i'm going to be sketching out again this is going to take a lot of work to develop but basically the answer is that we are stuck in a fake religion where we worship we um, we we Call it anthropolatry, the worship of human beings as God. We think we're omnipotent. We have this bizarre collective self-image of humanity, not no, excuse me, it's man, usually. Man striding boldly forward toward the stars. It's a myth. <laughs> it's a religious myth. And people believe it at a gut level. They worship that image. Of themselves, that image of man, the conqueror of nature, and that that delusional worship, that ersatz religion, that frankly crazy ideology, is what's running this, was running our civilization and our species face first into the brick wall of ecological disaster, and. So I want to talk about that, and I want to talk about how, where that, where those ideas came from, how they influence our thinking, how to get past that, frankly, those frankly crazy notions, to grapple with the the actual what we actually are, which is not man the conqueror of nature or anything like that. You know what are what are we? How do we relate to the world? How do we relate to the living earth? How do we relate to the universe as a whole? What can we expect from the future of our species? And what happens if we actually get realistic about that and stop believing in Star Trek fantasies? Uh, you know of humanity metastasizing across the galaxy and how do we express that in our lives how does that change who we think we are and this, how we behave it's it I, i'm just i'm just kind of touching the edges of a, what is a really a very vast topic here and that's the thing that i want to explore what happens after man the conqueror of nature is pushing up daisies in the the, the cemetery of dead faiths
1: yeah, well, it's uh, ironic, isn't it, that you were complaining about the performance of your blogging platform, particularly vis-a-vis upgrades and, you know, user interface, whether it's for yourself or for uh, readers, you know, from their uh, user experience of it. Uh, in terms of increasing complexity and, uh, you know, <laughs> because that of course is something that you've been railing against for a long time. And I noticed recently that it was a quite a high profile or certainly it was circulated quite widely on the web panel discussion that you were part of along with uh, ja- wow. James Hard Kunstler and uh, Dimitri mm-hmm. Orlov and others but mm-hmm. i mentioned those two guys because they're also very good on this you know this constant you know upgrade thing and how selling us new products or giving us upgraded performance software or hardware actually quite a long time ago ceased becoming about actual improved performance mm-hmm. and it was more just about improved complexity for its own sake it was a great a great discussion all round i thought uh some great questions Conster I'd had on here before, and I was very impressed with him. Dimitri Orlov I just had on recently, and uh, we got oh, on like we got on like a house on fire putting you you guys together i don't know if you'd actually i know you'd you'd known james uh his work for a while i don't know if you'd known him personally oh yeah putting you two guys together and dimitri and and the others on the same panel it really was like why are these guys not you know reporting to the united nations or something you know but then i thought well (laughs) that wouldn't really do any good anyway you know but uh you know the world needed to be watching that debate as far as i was concerned
0: we had a grand time. Um, Dimitri and Jim and I and Chris Martins and one of the other guests, yes. we have been on peak oil panels for years, since there have been peak oil panels. Um, back when ASPO, the, um, Association for the Study of Peak Oil, used to be holding the big conferences in Washington, D.C., um, we were, we were perennially at those. We attended lots of other things. You know, we we're, so it, it was kind of, it was almost, almost a reunion, um, when we got, we got together in, um, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and at that, at that event. We had a grand time. Um, but with regard to the point you made about upgrades, yeah, Calvin Trillin, the, the, uh, the writer and essayist, really hit, hit a nerve of, what was it, a few months ago. He, he had an essay out suggesting the, the scariest word in the English language right now is upgrade mm-hmm. because you never know what they're going to do to the software that you need, and usually they're going to make it worse. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was it was indeed, I mean, yeah, there was a serious irony at work here in that I'd been talking about how progress no longer means means improvement, how the next generation of any given software usually, usually has more downsides and fewer benefits than whatever it replaces, the complexity for its own sake is a recipe for disaster, and what happens? My own blog starts getting caught in that classic trap. And so, yeah, it was, you know, definitely one of those things. That, mind you, I didn't yell and pound my fist or anything like that. I, I, I did my best to go, yeah, that's about what to expect now. But the new blog... Is on a much less complex platform, which again, you know, has only such bells and whistles as I actually need. I have an IT person, an actual human being, rather than in you know, some kind of vast um, electronic um, algorithm or something, who I can talk to, and you know, who in a very low-tech manner, and who can like pull plugs on things. We've already had to di- to disable one upgrade, which rendered one of the functions of the site uh, non working, and I'm sure there will be more. And I, in fact, I expect one of the things we're all going to see in the years immediately ahead is situations where the single most important thing you have to know how to do in order to keep, especially what, what online software, computer stuff, and so on, to keep functionality is to know which upgrades to block. What what progress not to engage in because each new step forward is a step downward?
1: Well, not that long ago, I had the hard drive on my laptop failed terminally. That Ooh. was it, you know, lights okay. out. It happens occasionally. Yeah. It's, you know, it's like the engine on your car blowing up. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's just one of these things. Uh, mm-hmm. As long as you mm-hmm. recover the data, you're okay, okay. Mm -hmm. So I spent my 100 quid or whatever it was in getting a new hard drive. One of the things, the side benefits, quote unquote, was, and the IT guy was very enthusiastic about this. He said, oh, we'll have to reinstall Windows. Uh, What package were you on? I said Windows 7, uh, which is the one I got the last time my hard drive Mm -hmm. failed. He said, oh, well, you'll be on Windows 10. It was only when I got it back home and I thought, "What the hell is this? Where where have those useful features gone to?" That I then Mm -hmm. I then went on to how shall we say a popular search engine looked up Mm -hmm. Windows Ten and found a whole community, a whole raft of websites devoted to complaints about Windows Ten. And I make no apologies. Mm -hmm. This is a Microsoft product here. We but we're not going to get done for like defamation because everyone knows it's rubbish and. Since then, I, I haven't met anyone, and I know some people who know a lot more about IT than I do, who says, you know, Windows 10 is wonderful, we're so glad for the upgrades. It's just people saying, please, mm-hmm. please, has anybody got a copy of Windows 7? And presumably when mm-hmm. that was released, people were
0: complaining about that. As I recall, as I recall, Windows 7 actually got fairly good reviews, but it came out after three or four other real dogs. Mm. and every so often the thing is every so often uh, Microsoft um, kind of accidentally produces something good these days but yeah Windows 10 is so bad they were giving away for for free and nobody was taking it yeah and yeah it's a great example um I have, the, I have the advantage of living in living in a very poor part of the United States right now, and I can go down to a used computer place here, um, on the wrong, literally on the wrong side of the tracks, and get a, a get a used, a used, reconditioned used laptop in good condition with Windows 7 installed, and that's what I use these days because again, Windows 10 is a is is a crock of, <coughs> as everyone knows. And um, when Windows 7 starts becoming impossible to use as I'm sure eventually it will. I'm probably going to have to go to Linux because I expect whatever, you know, when Windows 11 comes out, I'm sure it'll be much worse. Mm. It's it's just one of those things. Sooner or later, somebody's going to catch on and will produce a kind, you know, maybe a Windows 7 clone that does all the same features, provides all the same things, and doesn't upgrade at all ever. And my guess is whoever does that is going to make a very tidy fortune because they provide a stable, reliable product that doesn't upgrade. And I think that's really going to be the way of the future.
1: Speaking a little more about the thinking behind uh, uh, Mm ecosofia.net, your new platform, uh, which in your words, Mm -hmm. uh, you say will reflect, quote, the emergence of a new fusion of ecology and religion in our time, not simply mm-hmm. as an abstract worldview, but as a way of life and a system or system of systems of spiritual and esoteric practice. Now, mm-hmm. my my boil down from that immediately was, well, I'd long held the view back since I'd started reading about the potential future, dark future for ultimately for industrial civilization back in the 70s. I'd always said to mm-hmm. myself, the biggest hurdle for people to try and come to terms with this is going to be in the mind. It's going to be psychological. The physical mm-hmm. the physical challenges are vast. Mm-hmm. It's going to get worse before it gets better. But if there's one thing that we could get over, it's the hurdle in our minds. So it always occurred to me that we're going to have to find a way of seeking and finding meaning and purpose in our lives, in existence, beyond the shallow way that so many of us find it now or pretend to find it. And mm-hmm. this is, for me, this is why I'm so very excited about what you're going to be moving on to next. Now, you use the word... Mm-hmm spiritual, there in that statement I've just quoted, and, mm-hmm. um, also the word religion. And again, this mm-hmm. reflects your personal life, your worldview, um, how you mm-hmm. see things. But perhaps you could just say a word about, uh, about, about just my general statement about the, you know, the idea that it's always been a psychological barrier and that we will f- we will find a way out of the- If we're going to find a way at all, we will find a way through mm-hmm. this and find meaning and purpose not in stuff, not in things, but in ourselves, in each other, in our relation to the wider world, to the cosmos.
0: I, I would say well, one of the problems we face is that this- these days the term religion gets used for a very, very narrow range of things. It usually has to do with... Um, you know, either Christianity or some some imitation thereof, or with certain you know certain belief systems from other cultures that, that share a lot in common. The question that I think needs to be settled is: What were were your values? Where? What do you think is ultimate importance? What really matters to you in a very real sense? That's your religion. The other question is. What are the narratives? What are the stories that you live your life according to? That's really where your religion is. That's where I'm talking about um, the the idea of man, the conqueror of nature, as this mythic figure. We've got this story stuck in our heads, and it's a dysfunctional story. And We need to learn different stories, and we need to learn to set aside the notion that man, the conqueror of nature, is the destined ruler of the cosmos. You know, uh, who, 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 for whom the whole universe is his Levin's realm. We need to, we need to ditch that. We need to outgrow it. And when I talk about terms, when I use terms like spirituality and religion. A lot of what I'm talking about is, is the fact that people have a religion they don't admit to. They don't see it as a religion because it doesn't. It doesn't. Wor- what? It doesn't have the same trappings as you know the C of E church down the block. Hmm. The the anthropology, the worship of man, the conqueror of nature. It, you know, it doesn't. It doesn't necessarily have organized churches. Although it might as well have priests. Um. Uh, what's the guy's name? Uh, I mean, Carl Sagan was a great example in the not too distant past. Neil deGrasse Tyson, I think, is the current high priest of man, the conqueror of nature. Um, You know, you've got people who are who are basically preachers who do who have exactly the same role in um, in the worship of man, the conqueror of nature, that um, you know, of a pulpit pounding a baptist preacher has today in their own religions you have the ideology you have the no you don't really have the holy books but no religions have holy books you know and there are certainly plenty of you know um Screeds and pamphlets and books to encourage the faithful in their belief in in you know the eternal triumphant uh, you know march of them the conqueror of nature for the stars, all this other stuff that really does function as a religion. It is it's where people put their hopes, where a lot of people put their hopes of of salvation. You know, progress is going to is supposedly going to bring us this perfect world in the future, where where everything you know, poverty and debt, disease and death itself, are have all been solved, and we're all zooming our way through the stars, and blah di blah di blah. It's not going to happen. I think if we actually rub our eyes and look around ourselves and see what the world is that progress has actually made, a world in which your average working class person works longer hours, um. With fewer breaks, fewer holidays, and gets a smaller proportion of his of his the value of his labor than peasants did in the Middle Ages, a world that is increasingly poisoned, increasingly polluted, increasingly dysfunctional, increasingly just saturated with with noise of all kinds, and you know increasingly saturated with upgrades. <laughs> um, exactly. You know, this is this is, where progr- this is what progress has produced. And if we actually wake up and look around ourselves and notice, okay, here's where we were and here's where we are, and all the things that brought us to this current place are still pushing in the same direction, they're not pushing us toward the stars. They're not even pushing us toward Brave New World. They're pushing us toward this sort of dysfunctional plastic nightmare of endless clutter and endless noise and endless point labor feeding the machine until finally one too many spare parts burns out and you know your little corner of the thing goes crashing to the ground um, I mean there's a lot of little corners that have already gone crashing to the ground If you go to Pittsburgh or you go to Glasgow or what have you places that used to be thriving industrial centers and are now um, hell holes of poverty and, and despair um, those are places that I mean that's another that's that, that's progress. That is one of the things that progress has produced. Um, this is what we need. We need to actually pay attention to the world that progress is making, and then we can step outside of that unspoken but pervasive religious belief, religious delusion, in the, inef- the, the inevitability and inevitable goodness of, of progress, and start saying, okay, do we actually want any more of this? So, because it has to do with issues of ultimate value, because it has to do with the stories that govern our lives and where we place our values, what we value, what we, where we place our hopes and our dreams, I think it's necessary to talk about that from from a standpoint of religion. And that's gonna—I I know that's gonna—you know—rattle um, some cages. That's gonna ruffle some feathers. Um, I do that. I make no—I make no excuse, for, you know, no apologies for that. Um the other thing i would point out though is that there have been a lot of attempts so far to deal with the problems of our time and and the 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 internal problems the the, the screwed up ideas we have in our heads by doing it in a in a wholly rational way by by explaining in patient detail just how badly the mythology of progress and and all of the things that come out of it fit the world we live in and how we're wrecking our you know the only planet where we're going to live on um And it doesn't work. One of the reasons it doesn't work is that human beings are not as smart as they think they are. We are not as rational as we like to think we are. We think in stories. We think in emotionally compelling stories. And so it's necessary to get past the head trip end of things and actually get down into the belly of belief, into the belly of of the stories, the attitudes, the narratives, the dreams, the unspoken cravings that actually drive us. And that's again something that religion does fairly well and that, um, you know, philosophy and, and and head trip stuff doesn't necessarily deal with. So all of these things are going to be part of what we're going to focus on in, in the new in the new blog in EcoSophia.
1: Just a quick reflection on your comment you said about, you know, people having a religion but not acknowledging it. Not even maybe recognizing it. I mm-hmm. for uh, one reason or another recently had to go and look up some uh, online images of the large hadron collider at cern i was looking at the, the thing just the immensity you know the largest the largest machine that exists on earth and mm-hmm. i saw i thought to myself the, the word that came into my head was cathedral and it was mm-hmm. mainly because of the scale of the thing but then mm-hmm. i thought this is the largest cathedral in the world it is filled with priests looking for god and yeah. that was a thought that i had and that had validity for me, and I thought, what these people are seeking is meaning. Mm-hmm. They're looking for meaning. Mm-hmm. They're looking for evidence of a purpose. It then got me... Exactly. It took me off in a lot of interesting directions in, mm-hmm. in terms of thought, which mm-hmm. actually overlapped somewhat. When I then came to read about the changes you were making to your blogging, I just thought mm-hmm. that there's, there's mm-hmm. something that ties in here.
0: Yeah, exactly. Because, yes, that's, that's a great example of the, the, the same sort of pursuit of ultimate meaning that, that created the cathedrals of medieval Europe is what's creating things like the, the Large Hadron Collider. We go out about it in a different way, but that's true in every, you know, every culture has its own way of seeking ultimate meaning. And that's fine. But what do we do when that quest for ultimate meaning is hooked, is, is intertwined with a set of beliefs that's leading us to destroy, the, to, to devastate our own, the, the only planet we'll ever live on? It's just, and so one of the things that I want to do, one of the core things I want to do in the discussions that follow, is to is to find a way to pry science loose from the the religion of man, the conqueror of nature, because science doesn't have to go down in flames. With the, you know, with the industrial age, it, it can be preserved as a living activity. I, I, I think it would be very good if it were preserved. I mean, the scientific method is one of the great, probably one of the half dozen greatest creations of the human mind. It's, a, it's an amazing tool for learning about nature. But again, it's gotten harnessed to this essentially religious drive and hooked up as I mentioned, to these, these delusional narratives that lead us to um, live lives of ecological stupidity, and not even notice. And so, how to how to approach science and how to practice science without becoming you know a priest of of man of, of man? Um, that's going to be something I want to talk about.
1: Yes. Now, there's something really, really important there. And mm-hmm. you mentioned, you alluded to it earlier, that the false dichotomy for the human future, that which lies between Mad Max scenario on one hand, the Star Trek utopian mm-hmm. scenario on the other hand. And, you, you know, you say you've always rejected that as the only choice. Mm-hmm. And I started thinking, as I often do in terms of pop culture, you know, Mad Max and mm-hmm. Star Trek being part of pop culture. Yeah, there you go. And I thought in a lot uh. of these post-apocalyptic scenarios, fiction, religion actually, some kind of thing surges up, some kind of cult-like entity or behavior comes in the aftermath of a great collapse as some form, mm-hmm. sometimes as a coping mechanism to try and get society mm-hmm. through, uh, sometimes as a means of control for those mm-hmm. individuals who are maybe seeking personal power, but maybe ultimately they're trying to just hold on to the shell of the society. And they use mm-hmm. this pseudo-religion to try and just hold society together. It can be a way mm-hmm. that in the face of extreme adversity... And uh mm-hmm. the end of the world as we know it, that human beings can maybe still try and hold on to some meaning and purpose. But in all of mm-hmm. that, some of these um fictional accounts give us a detailed story of something going too far, overshoot in which technology and science become demonized because they were blamed for what happened Mm -hmm. you see what i mean Mm -hmm. and in the in the real world i suppose that is always a risk isn't it as you say that it could become the scientists did this you know there will be no more science in this world or whatever it happens to be
0: (laughs) well the thing is and it's already happening Mm. um here in the united states we have we have a growing number of people who are um very hostile toward science uh, we have the, um, you know, the, the uh, creationist types who are convinced that the Bible should be taken as a geology textbook, which it is not. not. Um, you have just, there's a lot of people who have become hostile towards science, and the thing is, they've got reason. I think of the number of people who simply don't, you know, when some kind when some of white lab coat comes up and stands up and says, you need to do X for the sake of your health. A lot of people go, why should I believe you? And the reason they do that is because there's been so much fraud and so much chicanery in the medical field, so many treatments and drugs that cause more harm than they, than they help, um, so much pursuit of profit at the expense of the consumer of medical care the consu- or the consumer of anything else. Science has unfortunately been, been in many fields, in many areas, corrupted by money. And so it's lost the respect of a huge number of people. One of the reasons why so many people, on on this side of the pond at least, reject the idea of global warming is precisely that they don't trust the scientists anymore. They assume that it's just, you know, it's going to be like cholesterol. You remember when cholesterol was bad for you? And oh, now yeah. some of it's good for you. Exactly. They're just going to flip-flop again. And they, they they've come to see science as not a way of understanding the universe but as just another form of propaganda that's used to manipulate people and the horrifying thing is that in some cases they're right and so that's you, you see i think that one of the that, that theme in science fiction that we see so often of a reaction against science in the wake of of apocalypse or of decline, I could see it. I could really see it. And one of the things that I think really badly needs to happen is that at least some people in the scientific community need to stop. Look at what they're doing. Look at what what they're doing looks like from outside, you know, the, the university, the comfortable bubble where they live, and start taking corrective action to try to make science live up to its dreams rather than simply cashing in for the for the convenient salary that's a that's a very hard road to hoe and there's going to be a it's going to be a lot of work needed but i think it can be done and we're going to be talking about that on the blog
1: sticking with um science fiction for a moment um, mm-hmm. if we consider that um the, the the modern industrial stroke scientific area if we think of the scientific revolution and then the industrial revolution and how that in various ways has brought us to where we are now. The point you've made and many others have made is that's a relatively short space of time in the span of human mm-hmm. existence. But mm-hmm. then thinking about predictive sci-fi, you can go back to The Machine Stops, for example, in 1909 mm-hmm. from E.M. Forster mm-hmm. um, or mm-hmm. the well-known pioneering movie Metropolis, Fritz Lang, 1927. Mm-hmm. And uh, Mm -hmm. that's, they seem like quite a long time ago in terms of our technology and science. And yet, in many ways, they were sort of saying,
0: you know, we saw this coming. I mean, the machine stops. What, 1909 was it, I think? Um, Yeah. yeah. It literally, um, it it set out internet culture in advance. It has everybody staring into screens and typing messages to each other, and even got many vices and problems of internet culture in 1909. It wasn't that hard to figure out. Um, but yeah, it seems you know, it's, it's like a very long time. But in terms of history, 1909 is an eye blink ago. Exactly. It was not that long ago. There's Actually, speaking of science fiction, there's a, a, a novel, kind of a classic novel that I've been rereading recently. Uh, Richard Cowper's The Road to Corlea. Um Cowper was a British science fiction author and it's set that this was written in i think the early 1980s don't quote me on that but um it's in a post um global warming world um great britain has turned into an archipelago where all of the hills and uplands are islands divided by um you know lots of open water and Rather than, and one of the things that he did that I thought was really, really striking is that it's a very recognizably English society, um, rather medieval English to be precise, and you get the sense of the modern industrial world as this short interruption in the ordinary flow of history. Just you know, here you have you know you have you have the the Anglo-Saxon period, you have the Norman period, you have the Middle Ages, you have the you know the the Renaissance and the Tudors and and so on, and then you have this industrial thing, and then it's over again, and you're back into the same rhythm. Yeah, that's. <laughs> and I I I found that I found that rather spooky because we don't think that way in America because we don't have that long historical the you know that long sense of, of existing history. We are the United States is basically a product of the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. And and so just that's not an easy thought for us on this side of the pond, but I, I thought it was really rather striking reading reading this and going, wow, I like that.
1: It, well, actually, you read my mind in terms of the next thought I was about to come back with, mm-hmm. uh, which mm-hmm. is in terms of this grand arc of progress that we're supposed to be on, uh, some mm-hmm. people... Who perhaps think they're being realistic would say, oh, "Okay, I mean, this does—you know—some of the problems we're facing at the minute in industrial civilization do look like a step backwards. It's only a step backwards in terms of two steps forward and one step back, and then we'll <laughs> and we will then again at some point in the near future take our two steps forward." Whereas the what you've just highlighted in terms of that that novel, which I'll actually go and look up afterwards. Mm-hmm. Is that it's worth reading it's not well yeah exactly i look forward to it it's not so much two steps forward and one step back but rather that we're now coming down from an artificial high mm-hmm. some kind of one-off drug that only existed for a brief mm-hmm. time and that we will actually return to as you say a rhythm that has some kind of long-term viability whatever word that you want to yeah.
0: use it's, um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we we did the drug is called petroleum okay and we have been mainlining that sucker in huge quantities, having gotten addicted to it. And the problem is, there's a finite amount of it on, the, you know, available to us in this end of the universe. And so, once it's gone, it's gone. And so many people. Assume, again, as a matter of faith, as a matter of religious faith, because they believe in that nothing can stop man, the conqueror of nature, from his, you know, his epic pilgrimage to the stars. They believe there has to be some other equally equally concentrated, equally abundant energy source out there. And when you try to talk to them about the fact that there isn't, the people who have been trying to find one with increasingly frantic efforts for almost a century now, and it's not there. Then Watching the blank look, because it has to be there. I mean, it's like the second coming. It has to happen. Um, that's, where you, that's where you realize you are dealing with a religious cult. You're not dealing with right, with reasoned thinking. Um, in point of fact, for a great many reasons, it's very, very unlikely that our species will ever encounter another energy source as abundant, as concentrated as useful as the petroleum that we spent the last, what, not yet 200 years burning through so recklessly. That was it. That was our, you know, that was our big energy supply. And look how we used it. And now, it's, now we're scraping the bottom of the barrel with increasingly frantic efforts trying to get what the little is left, the, the crud at the bottom... And trying to convince ourselves there has to be more. Uh, there's going to be more something somewhere, somewhere out there. There's got to be another energy source. There isn't. And so that means, yeah, the party's over. As, as Richard Heinberg, you, you know, he, he wrote a very good book on the end of the oil age with that title, The Party's Over. Now we're waking up sprawled on the floor with a lampshade on our heads. <laughs> the place is trashed. The windows are broken. There's broken bottles all over the place. Um, and we have an epic world-class hangover, and we're sitting up going, oh, crap, what did I do? That's the shape of our future.
1: Well, in some ways, some people would say, maybe it was better that we got that that hooch, we downed that hooch in one, and we didn't try, (laughs) you know, we didn't try and make it, string it out over a few millennia. The only caveat there being that well okay maybe it would be better if we just realized that we couldn't do that forever but what would literally as you say what would the hangover from that be and if the result Mm -hmm. of the end of the oil age um or industrial civilization as we know it if that was to really you know detrimentally impact like really um maybe come close to taking us out as a species, mm-hmm. you know, we don't really want to sail too close to wind on that one. So that would be unfortunate because yeah. there's two, mm-hmm. you know, there are ways we can go forward with this. Some of them are relatively constructive and positive. Others see, mm-hmm. see us coming very close to the, well, how can I put it? Very close to the, a very dark place that we maybe don't want to go. But maybe mm-hmm. we, we might have to go through that. I mean, time will tell.
0: At this point, the Hirsch report, uh, written by Robert Hirsch and a number of other specialists, um, published in two thousand and five. It was originally a secret report for the U.S. Department of Energy, but it got out into the public, into public circulation anyway. And what what they were trying to do is figure out: okay, um, given the reality that there's only a finite amount of oil on the planet, given that that's what we've got, and when we use it, it's gone. How soon do we have to start making preparations for? the downside in order to make it without extreme convulsions and major disruption. And their best estimate was you had to start 20 years before the peaking of uh, conventional petroleum resources. Unfortunately, the peaking of conventional petroleum resources happened in 2005, the same year the study came out. So we actually had to start making these changes in 1985 in order to do it without massive disruption. Um, we didn't at that point that's water that's you know water over the dam and so we're going to be going through a very messy future that's that's already baked into the cake that's already there the question is can we mitigate it can we ameliorate it can we make sure that um a lot of the great achievements of the last few centuries actually survive the bottleneck. Yes, there's a lot of stuff we can do like that. But it's not going to keep industrial civilization from going through some very dark times.
1: Well, just a um final thought for me, John, mm-hmm. as we begin to close up for today. Uh I think mm-hmm. it's interesting that um if we forget well, you know, not necessarily forget, but if we somewhat set aside anything that might previously have been called a pagan revival or an archaic mm-hmm. revival or mm-hmm. anything like that. I think it's interesting that there's in my sphere of influence and experience, there's a lot of people taking an interest in how we used to live a very positive influence, not one born mm-hmm. of, of desperation, but very, very positive, Uh w- mm-hmm. whether it's from a spiritual perspective or whether it's from mm-hmm. a purely practical perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I find mm-hmm. it just, there's mm-hmm. a, a magical and mythical consciousness kind of re-emerging that I see mm-hmm. in, in tandem with a lot of, uh, interest in how we used to do things. And it's, it's very inspiring. And I feel that, um, there are for every kind of, um, internet addicted slug that is born. <laughs> It today, mm-hmm. um, who will just live in a single room and stare at a screen and with uh, wasted muscles and exist on junk food or whatever, there is someone being born into the world that really will see it anew. It will see what the potential, the possibilities mm-hmm. that have always been there, and they won't necessarily mm-hmm. be mesmerized by this, this short-term kind of movie that's been running that's had so many people um entranced for so long. And I think what we make of the near and medium term future, uh, which is all I think that you and I, who are won't be that long for this world, I fear, <laughs> all we can really think about. I think it's really it's there for the taking, you know. And as much as I, I I just said a few moments ago, I think we can we may go through some very dark times and things may get a lot worse before they get better. But I do feel that the future is there, it is not written. You know, we can make Mm -hmm. of this what Mm -hmm. we will. And
0: it's, you know, the the plates are up in the air, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the thing is, there's still a lot of possibilities, especially when we're talking about individuals, families, small communities, groups of people. They've got enormous flexibility. What happens to the huge aggregations, to nations, to civilizations, those have a lifespan. Those have a cycle they sort of stumble their way through, especially civilizations. But as you get closer to the human level, you get a lot more freedom. So the, the thing I want to point out, though, is that you, this, this, the fact that people are starting to take an interest in older ways of doing things, yeah, it's a hugely hopeful sign in two ways. First of all, because a lot of those older ways are actually sustainable where the, the current um, high-energy, high-complexity, high-technology ways are not. But the other thing is that it shows that people are starting to notice one of the great unspoken facts about life in modern industrial society, which is that it sucks. It's not, you know, again, the world, the prog- the world that progress has made, it's not utopia, it's quite the opposite. It sucks. Living in older ways is actually more fun. It's more interesting. It's more entertaining. There's, you can do things that you can't do on a glass screen. And it engages the whole of you. It's not just, you know, your thumbs and your eyeballs. And so people are starting to wake up and notice that. Now, when I say that, and I've said it at various times in various places, somebody immediately leaps up and tries to drag in some Usually character of some really bad thing that used to happen back then. Were there bad things that happened in the past? Of course. Okay. That doesn't mean we can't pick out the good things. That doesn't mean we cannot create a hybrid of those modern things that we can preserve and those older things that we can revive and put together something wholly new out of the mixture. You, you, that's, that's heresy. That's blasphemy in the ears of believers in man, the conqueror of nature. Because you're not supposed to choose what technologies you use. You're not supposed to pick and choose from the past. That's that's just blasphemous. The past is evil. The past is the, is the hell from which the Messiah of progress is saving us. But in fact, um, when lifeways from the past are more viable, more sustainable, and more fun than those of the present and, and the impending future, why not?
1: John, today we've been talking about changes going forward in your online presence and blogging. You've got a mm-hmm. new blogging platform already out there, ecosophia.net. You can tell listeners a little bit more about that, you know, when that's really going to kick in. Uh, you've also got, mm-hmm. um, books coming out later in the year. The retro, oh, yeah. the retro future you mentioned earlier. Subtitle, mm-hmm. subtitle for that is looking to the past to reinvent the future. I also noticed mm-hmm. that you've got something called the occult book a chronological journey from alchemy to Wicca. That looks like something of a must-have.
0: That's going to be fun. It, it, it was fun to write. It's been really fun to watch, to be part of the production process. Sterling Publications does these chronologies where they want like 100 vignettes from the history of something. And they they asked me to do one on the history of occultism. And so I've got from Pythagoras to um, nothing happened today, December twenty-first, twenty twelve, a sort of um, capsule history of a hundred events in the history of occultism. It's a fun, it's a fun book, very well illustrated. I, I'm I'm looking forward to that one.
1: Yeah, I mean, it looks great from what I've seen so far, mm-hmm. and the uh, your aforementioned blog, the Arch Druid Report, um, it seems you're going to actually that will be. That would be going away as far as online is mm-hmm. concerned, but that's going to be presented in a 10-volume print edition, ultimately. In a so a
0: 10-volume set. Exactly. process.
1: Well, just in closing, remind folks of your new uh, web addresses, where they can find you, because of course, any of the forthcoming projects we've just spoken about, they'll be able to find um, information, mm-hmm. links, everything they need mm-hmm. about all of that at your new uh, mm-hmm.
0: website. That's at that, that my new digs. That is um, it all That also has, by the way, directories and links to all of my books and to a bunch of older essays and so on that I've written and various other things. I'm, I'm gradually... It's got a, um, some placeholders, and there's already some conversations going on there. I expect to start blogging regularly right around the summer solstice. That's uh, June 21st, for those of you who don't speak Druid. Um, and I, I expect a good time is going to be had. The new site is shaping up really nicely. Um, for those who also like the slightly, the, the slightly shorter variety of social media, I also have a presence now on DreamWidth. So ecosophia.dreamwidth.org will get you my um, occasional, maybe a couple times a week, um, references to new books coming out, reviews of, um, of other people's work, um, catcalls in the, re- in the direction of unusually stupid news stories, all kinds of things like that.
1: Wonderful. Well, John, thank you so much for joining us once again on LegalizeFreedom.com.
0: Pleasure to be honest with you.